Let's pray. Our holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we're readily reminded that the privilege of gathering with your people, coming before you week in and week out, is an undeserved grace. And so our prayer this week is no different than it, it has been for every week this church has been in existence. That you would meet with us. You would allow us to rightly behold you in and through the right preaching of your word. Would you give us understanding so that our lives would be changed? Just reminded even this morning, this service, this sermon it's it's so much bigger than Micah and Rachel and family this is so much bigger than a song a sermon a preacher a people you alone are worthy of this and so let that be our declaration And give us joy in meeting with you for your glory, for our good. Less of us, more of you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The year was 1792. In an effort to garner support for his ambition to, to reach unreached peoples with the gospel, William Carey published a work entitled An Inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. Most of his contemporaries believed that the work of cross-cultural evangelism applied only to the apostles. Carey challenged that view by arguing that the Great Commission was binding upon every generation of Christians. Later that year, after publishing that work, he preached a sermon from Isaiah chapter 54, verses 2 and 3, and the sermon had two points. Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. The following year, William Carey was sent to India. Because of his advocacy of, uh, of missions and of foreign missions, he has come to be called the father of modern missions. It is worth noting as you think about God's work among the nations, all times, all places, William Carey wasn't the first missionary to go. In fact, there was a freed Georgia slave named George Lyle who would go to Jamaica 10 years prior for Carey setting out for India. Before Carey left, he told his close friend, Andrew Fuller, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. And hold the ropes, William Fuller did. He advocated for international missions. He cared for the spiritual lives of missionaries, regularly, thoroughly, uh, fervently praying for missionaries, even until his death in 1814. And towards the end of his life, William uh, Andrew Fuller would write, 
the call of holding the rope for my brothers and sisters in the faith is one of the greatest causes a Christian can undertake. I wonder this morning if we believe that. In five days, a dear family of this church will be sent out to Southeast Asia with the hopes of advancing the gospel among people who have yet to hear. And my hope today is that God's word would encourage them as they go, but also that God's word would instruct us as we send. This precious privilege that their church family, perhaps you're here, your biological family, perhaps you're here, your friends, the precious privilege that we have of joyfully, faithfully, perseveringly holding the ropes for them. And I've also been praying this week that God's word would also grip our hearts and our minds, the, the senders among us, our hearts, our minds, our wills, And then what we would find is there would begin to be this opening up of the closed fist of availability in answer to the question, Lord, how might you use me? Gospel advance in Tampa, across Tampa Bay, and unto the nations. And so let me say it another way. I have been praying this week for a spirit-infused resolve to be birthed in each one of us, to live faithfully for the glory of God, and that in great kindness there would be some from among us who would come to the elders, who would come before the church, and who would just say, I want to be sent across culture in order to spend my life for the spread of the gospel. And I'm aware that what fuels that kind of resolve It's not merely a sermon that's based around staggering and and, and sobering statistics. Though I do just want to put into perspective what those statistics are. Let the reality of 17,281 people groups in the world, 17,281 of the 17,281 people groups in the world, It's estimated that 7,246 of them are unreached. World's population just hit 8 billion. That would be 3.4 out of 8 billion have no access to even hear of the good news of Jesus Christ. 42.4%. I think it's helpful for that reality to set upon us, but this is what I'm aware of. I don't believe that that reality will call many of us to give, some of us to give our lives for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Rather, I think the greatest motive in world missions is not even what it is that people are saved from. It's not even the fact that there is an eternal judgment under the wrath of God, in a very real place called hell. As horrific as that is, 
I think the greatest motive for world and global missions is not, these are the statistics, it's not, this is what's facing people. I think it's the greatest good. The greatest, the, the great motive for world missions is the greatest good in the gospel. Not merely what we're saved from, but what it is that we're saved to. Everlasting enjoyment of God. Being with the God who created and who redeems. There is not a joy that will surpass that joy of being with God. And so I pray that it would be that type of God-centered enjoyment and worship that would lead some to say, I'll answer the call and I'll go. God-centered worship inevitably leads to global missions because everyone who worships the one true and living God longs, longs for others to worship Him too. They don't merely want to praise Him alone, but we want to drink from that fount that makes the heart glad. We want others to drink from that fount too. And so the result of, of receiving the Spirit of God and being a Christian is that we center our life on God. And the result of God-centered praise and worship and, and, and uh, the centering of our lives is really this being compelled to get the gospel to others so that they would be able to enjoy God and to know Him forever. And so to this end, we do all that we can to spread a passion for his supremacy among all peoples. Charles Spurgeon said, It is with cheerfulness that we dismiss our twelves, our twenties, and our fifties to set off from us to form other churches. We encourage our members to leave us to begin to found, start other churches. We even seek to persuade them to do it. We ask them to scatter throughout the land to become goodly seed, which God shall bless. Spurgeon said, I believe that so long as this church does that, then we shall prosper. Covenant Life Church, your pastors believe this too. That as we send goodly seed from among us throughout the globe, that we trust that this is the way in which God has chosen to bless the gospel going forth and his church being strengthened. And so this morning, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'll be preaching out of the New American Standard. If you don't have a Bible, free to grab one in front of you. Use the table of contents, 2 Thessalonians going to be in the New Testament, so it's going to be near the end. In Acts chapter 17, we're told that Paul established the church at Thessalonica basically in three Sabbaths. He's, committing to, he's committed to simply preaching the word, and as he preaches the word, the word goes forth. People then are saved. What do you do with those who come to faith, who are willing to give up everything 
to come and submit their life to the Lordship of Christ. The, the New Testament is clear. The goal isn't merely to make converts, it's to make disciples. Those who would not only come to faith, but then gather together and live by that faith and help others do the same. And you begin to see these local expressions of the church begin to form. And so Paul preaches after three Sabbaths. He then commits to staying a little longer. And so many scholars would say, and they believe that, that the church that receives this letter, 2 Thessalonians, possibly was only one to two years old. Shortly after sending the first letter, he gets word about them and he sends the second letter to address them being idle. And what they thought, kind of the root of their bad living was bad thinking, bad doctrine. They were thinking, ah, we don't have to work anymore because Jesus has already returned. They thought they were living during his return. And Paul writes to say, no, 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 let's be clear. You won't miss it when it happens. So stand firm. Like continue in my teaching. It's not merely a coasting until you breathe your last. It's this discipline for godliness. And in this last chapter of 2 Thessalonians, he helps us understand what it's like. Part of how we discipline ourselves for godliness is what we do, how we steward what has been entrusted to us with this gospel. And so Paul says, this is what it's like to support those who have gone out from you. The way that Paul was sent out from his missionary journey. Paul begins this section with the word finally, indicating that he's finished the main argument and he's getting to the end where he will have a few exhortations and a few encouragements in this last chapter. And it's interesting how he starts. Like, How would you start... If you were writing a letter and you were saying, no, 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 like, let me just summarize everything that I've been saying. I want to call you to stand firm, continue to discipline yourself, give yourself to gospel-fueled resolve. It's not merely let go, let God. It's not that just I got in and, and then he's going to do the rest. It's just, no, like we are training ourselves. What we, what we even talked about last week. We are fighting so that the gaze that would captivate and grip our hearts the most is not the gaze of other earthly goods, but it's the gaze that is found. It's the glory that is found in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God that's meant to melt our hearts and draw us into deeper worship. Like Paul says that's the work that we give ourselves to. And so you're writing and you're calling people to do this you're ending this letter. How would you encourage the recipients of the letter to respond? Interestingly, Paul begins 2 Corinthians chapter 3 with a prayer request. He's reminding them, and by extension, us this morning, of what he believes to be true about gospel ministry. And the most fundamental thing that he believes to be true about gospel ministry is that he believes that this is the work of God. Like, this is God's work. It doesn't matter how gifted any instrument that's in his hands, 
God's work is God's work, and it requires God in order for it to succeed and to prosper. And so he asked for this church to pray for him. It's a song that we sing, even a line that we sing, founded from the word of God, unless the Lord does build the house. In vain, the builders strive. And the humility, the humility to just begin here as he closes out this letter, he is acutely aware of his need in order to be faithful to the work of the gospel advancing. Sadly, too much Christian work is attempted today on the basis of human plans and human promotion with far too much dependence on the, the methods that are employed and the dynamic personalities that are used rather than prayerful dependence upon the Lord. And so just to be clear, as we have the privilege of sending out today, we're not sending out tethering this mission to how amazing the ones we're sending are. We're not tethering the hope for this mission to even how well we've thought through things, how faithful we have been here or there, or, or the plans that we have and, and the pipelines that we have and the blueprints that we know. Like our hope in sending out and for this mission, accomplishing God's purposes, centers completely on the God in whose name and power we go. And the more you get to know this church, I think the more you'll realize this is all we have. And praise be to God, it's all we need. Micah and Rachel have made clear, even as they think about this calling upon their life, this walking in obedience, church affirming, that their greatest need is that of prayer. I think, I think we could ask any missionary friend, anyone faithfully giving their lives for the spread of the gospel, what the most pressing support need is for the work that they do. And I don't know. I don't know of anyone that would say, our greatest need is for the Lord to do what we can't do. And yet for the Lord to use what he's promised to use in order to do the work that we can't do. Like, that's our greatest need. I think if we were to ask them even this morning, what would you prefer, prayer or finances? I'm sure they would say, both. <laughs> like, why separate two really good friends? But then if you pushed them a little bit more, I think they would say what we need most is for God's people to go to the throne of God on our behalf. I think you and I can think that financial support is the most meaningful way that we can serve. 
And praise be to God, that is a meaningful and needed way that we can serve. But the gift of support through prayer, it requires a level of sacrifice that even giving doesn't. I mean, I think about even the act of giving that happens week in and week out in our gathering. It takes tremendous amount of effort for me to pray for what happens here in comparison to giving when we're here. And again, it's not that one is more important than the other is not important. I think it's just there's this misconception that somehow prayer support is not as important. Again, I'm helped by what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said, No man can do me a truer kindness in this world than to pray for me. And so, Micah and Rachel, I want you to know that it is our joy as your church family to pray for you. Pray for you not only today. Pray for you not only in the days of transition as you're setting up and, and getting established, but to, but to pray consistently for you through your tenure, wherever the Lord would take you. This is our pledge to you. I believe this is our gift to you. And it's our joy to do this for you. Come to Life Church, this is our rope to carry and to hold. And it's our privilege to do this. I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, naturally, these first five verses naturally fall into two parts. Each of those parts will be sermon points this morning. The first is reasons to pray. And the second is reasons for confidence. Reasons to pray. And secondly, reasons for confidence. Reasons to pray. We see this in the passage that you heard, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Pray for us. It's a present imperative verb. The better rendering of that would be, finally, brethren, keep on praying for us. And what is it that we are to pray for? Paul is asking, he's requesting prayer from this church, saying, pray for us, keep on praying for us, that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly and would be glorified, just as it did also with you. Pray that the word of the Lord would speed ahead, would spread rapidly, and would be glorified, and would be honored. And he says, the same way that that gospel, that word came to you, and it was honored. You believed. Paul says, pray that that would happen everywhere that we go. The gospel. Pray for us that the word of the Lord, if you were to go back again, you look at Acts chapter 17, what is it that was being preached was this gospel message, the gospel, the good news of what God has done in and through the sending and the work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the word of the Lord. 
pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly. The word of the Lord, this is not human invention. The origin of the word of the Lord is the Lord. The word that was authored by God himself has been entrusted to Paul. This precious message of the gospel. And thinking about Paul referring to what has happened among them, that that would be what they could pray for. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, When you received the word of God, you accepted it for what it really is. That's the honoring, the glorifying of the word. It's spreading and it's glorified when people received it. Whenever they are able to behold what we saw last week, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that the enemy is actively blinding them from beholding. But whenever the gospel goes forth, the Lord by his spirit is using that message to remove blinders, to allow people to behold his glory. And people who behold his glory are never the same. This is the message that has been entrusted to Paul, that he is to be faithful, to proclaim. This is the message this morning that has been trusted to you, Micah and Rachel. And you are to be faithful to proclaim it. And good news for you, you will cross a cultural divide that will be greater than than probably any other cultural divide that you've ever crossed. And the good news for you is that you're not needing to know what the cultural climate is in order to know what type of word of God you need to proclaim. No, it's the unchanging word of God. It's the word of God that saved you out of your sin. And as you hold that out, he will do that work of saving others out of theirs. There's a certain content to this word. We're not called to be editors of it. We're called to be faithful proclaimers of it. And so be faithful to proclaim that. It doesn't need to be tweaked. It doesn't need to be made more appealing. And that's not only for you, that's also for us, senders. This word of the Lord, this gospel message, doesn't need your innovative touch in order to make it somehow appealing to your neighbors or your coworkers or your children or your classmates. It needs you to be faithful, to hold it out and just watch the Spirit work. And this request, it's, it's not related to health or financial need. No, he's saying, pray that this word would spread and be honored. Like, this is capturing just the passion of his heart. Like he longs for the gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. And this morning we stand as a church and there's a similar passion in the hearts of our brother and sister. One of the fruits of the gospel taking hold of one's heart is the care that begins to work itself out to seeing that same gospel find its root in other hearts. And so pray, pray that the gospel may run ahead, may speed ahead without hindrance, without obstruction. Pray that it would run swiftly, it would run triumphantly, that the gospel would speed ahead and would be honored. The scope of this is worldwide. 
And this is a great prayer for us to pray for our missionaries, for our church planners, for our preachers, for uh, members in this church. Not only do we want the gospel to, to run, and this is Paul, Paul's language, he's borrowing from sort of the athletic realm. It's not just we want the word and we want the gospel to have feet and to run. But it's no, 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 we're not just running the race, we're actually running to compete. Like we want this thing to, to triumph, we want the gospel, we want this word to win and to be appropriately honored. Paul is passionate about the gospel and the effects of the gospel. Pray, pray that God would give us an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. But as you're praying for those opportunities, pray that the gospel would run ahead rapidly, swiftly, and that it would triumph. Not only pray that it runs to Southeast Asia, but that it would be honored it would win, it would triumph in Southeast Asia over every other worldview there is. Pray that the gospel would go forth and be fruitful. And church, this happens at an individual level as well. Make this a matter of prayer for you. This happens at a family level. Make this a matter of prayer for your family. Lord, how might the gospel run ahead of us as a family? And how might we labor to see it triumph? This ought to be informing our prayers together as a church. We pray for this in Southeast Asia. We pray for this in, in Wales. We pray for this in the DR. We pray for this in our efforts here in Tampa Bay. And then we ask God, God, we're praying that the gospel would run ahead and it would triumph. And don't forget to pray, Lord, help me be a part of how you answer that prayer. And the phrase that was used to inspire them, as happened among you. Like the gospel came running into Thessalonica through Paul. It swiftly ran and it spread broadly and it was honored. It triumphed in conversion. Mike and Rachel, as you think about the days in which the gospel seems to be running ahead and there's much joy, be reminded this is the same work, the same gospel, the same God that has graciously res rescued you. And on days where it seems like there is no fruit to be found, remember the same God using the same gospel has gone before and he rescued even the likes of you. Like there's hope. And your hope rests not in the fruit that you can see. Your hope rests in the faithfulness that marks him and his word. Like give yourself to that. This should inspire their prayers for Paul as they think about even their own conversion. Covenant Life Church, as you think about even your own conversion, this should inspire our prayers for our brother and sister. That the gospel would keep running and would be honored in and through conversion.
Like we just would begin to pray, Lord, would you do for them what you so graciously have done for us? No more effective way to serve this family than to pray. And perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, and I just want to say a word. The takeaway for you this morning would not be, okay, what do I need to do in order to know how to best hold the rope? I think what's helpful for you this morning is to realize that because of your sin, you're actually at the bottom of the pit in need of someone bringing this good news to you to draw you out of a pit that you can't get out of on your own. You say, well, that's kind of harsh for you to say. You don't even know me. I don't know you. God does. And God's word is true, always true. And God's word has made clear that our greatest need is that we have been hardwired to rebel against the God to whom we are accountable to and who we have been made for. And, and that is not like, oh, my bad, I shouldn't have done it. No, this is devastating. To even There is now an inability to, to have a relationship on the basis of anything other than deserving of wrath, pouring out His wrath. If we want any other relationship with God, it cannot be had because of our sin. And there's nothing within us that is good enough to get us out on our own. And so God in great kindness would send Jesus to come and to live a life that we can't live, but that we're required to, one that's perfect, that obeys the will of the Father. And he would get to the end of his life and he would be expired. He would die upon a cross in the kind of death that's reserved for the worst of criminals. And he would die that death not for any crime or sin or anything that he did wrong. No, the Bible makes clear that he would die that death as a substitute on behalf of a people who would recognize their sin, who would trust in the work of Christ, who would then believe. You say, that sounds like there's a little bit of hope, but he's still dead. And that's because the story isn't over. <laughs> On the third day, he raises from the dead, triumphantly over death, showing that all who turn from sin and place their faith and trust in him, they will have life with him forever. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want you to know the same way that every Christian can say, there was only one way I came up out of the pit. The Lord in great grace used the efforts of some to share a message with me, but the Lord brought me out. Like that can be your story. That can be your story today if you're willing to turn from sin. Everything that makes a relationship with God a problem, everything that you've done that he says you shouldn't do and everything you've not done that he says you should do. And so I'm not trying to burst your bubble, but the Bible makes clear we are not as good as we think we are. And so in kindness, come to him. 
Trust in him. Turn from your sin. And you can know then the sweet joy of what we've been talking about. Not just, I don't get his wrath, but now I get his pleasure forevermore. That's available in Christ. If you're not a Christian, talk to anyone today about how you can know life abundant on this earth, eternal for all of eternity. Talk to anyone. It would be our joy to talk to you about that. And this is a prayer. God, would you allow the word to to speed ahead, to triumph as it goes forward. This is a prayer that we've sought to test drive. 15 years ago in Wake Forest, North Carolina, there was a church that said, we want the gospel to go ahead and we want it to run ahead swiftly. We want it to go and we want it to be honored in a place where best we could tell uh, there was a need. And so God, in his mercy, saw fit for a church to send out And I just, even sitting back last night, thinking about over the years, the last 15 years, of how the gospel has run forth and and how just names begin to come to mind of people that, by God's grace, have crossed over from death to life. And then eight years ago, we said, we don't want covenant life to be the only expression of that, and so we plant the heights. And in God's providence, the heights is no longer a church today. And I can think, man, that was some type of failure. But then I began to realize, no, 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 wait a minute. I just even remember the story of Steve and Ashley living together. They would come to the service through a friend's invitation, through the preaching of the word. They were convicted of their sin. They separated from their living arrangements. They got married. They both turned to Christ. And just beginning to think, no, 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 that wasn't a waste. It wasn't a failure. And then thinking what we did A little over a year and a half ago, sending covenant hope out. Even talking with Ronnie this week of just how there was a a person that was put in touch to their church through this street evangelist. And that just began a relationship where Ronnie began to invest and, and meet regularly with this guy. And the church is beginning to kind of pray and, and they're they're all getting intertwined and and This person's made aware of their sin, made aware of the good pleasure that's found in God. The best that they can tell, they believe that God in kindness has saved this person. It's their hope within the coming weeks, Lord willing, to be able to baptize this person. Just thinking, God, your word is running ahead. And we're begging you, would you allow it to triumph? The gospel runs and spreads and is honored. Aren't you glad this is happening? Like your life is a part of something bigger than just what happens within these four walls. Like you're being swept up into the joy-producing activity of the eternally good and joy-filled God. So leverage your life. Wherever else you would be sent, whatever else you would do, leverage your life. Learn and pray for unreached language groups. Become familiar with certain uh, 
book, Operation World and Joshua Project. Make yourself involved at our Mission 67 conference. Read biographies. God's global purposes. Like that is what we're asking. Lord, would you allow your purposes, which are global, to match our ministries? God, we want those ministries to align there. But Paul also prays, not just pray that it would run forth and spread, but he says pray that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men. And so let's just call it for what it is. This is what awaits those who go to give their lives for the spread of the gospel among unreached peoples. None of us should have a romanticized picture of what will await them. The call to missions in this context is a call to suffer in large and small ways. And yet joy in the Lord is the power to endure to the end in a lifetime of faithful missionary service. Paul requested specific support in prayer because he knew that he was totally dependent upon God for the advance of the gospel. And Mike and Rachel are depending on your support, Covenant Life Church, for the advance of the gospel. One commentator said, each missionary associated with your church must be able to depend on prayers from the church. And again, Mike and Rachel, I want you to know that you can depend on this from us. Not because we are dependable. But because the God who is shaping us and who we're seeking to behold is. And He's making us what we're not. You won't be forgotten here. And you can depend on us in prayer. Pray that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men. This explains why there will be opposition to the gospel, but it also explains why they are going. Brings us to the second point, the reasons for confidence. The reasons for confidence. If you just look at verse 3, 4, and 5, they jump off the page. The Lord is faithful. He will strengthen and protect you, and He will keep you. Having described human unfaithfulness in the form of these perverse and wicked and evil men, Paul then contrasts that with the faithfulness of the Lord. And so Mike and Rachel, this morning, and, and all Christians, this morning, you can know that the Lord is faithful to you. He's faithful to His Word. He's faithful to His people. He is faithful to sustain you as you serve Him amidst opposition. Like, that's your hope. The hope isn't that there's a circumstance that's going to be really easy or it's not going to cause... No, the hope is His character. His character is what will buoy you. When the waves begin to throw you. God will not allow his word, nor his church, nor his mission to fail. 
And that has to be of deep comfort to you. God will not allow his word, his church, or his mission to fail. The plans and the purposes of God will ultimately triumph. That is the root of your confidence as you go. And that is the root of our confidence as we send. God's faithfulness is the ticket. And so Paul, even in verses 3, 4, and 5, it's as if, I mean, you almost think the letter could have ended with, okay, pray for us. Pray for us as, as, as we're going out, that the gospel would go, and then pray for us as we are opposed by wicked and evil men. But it's as if, it's as if he's writing, and, and he doesn't want to leave. In the minds of the listener, wait a minute. Is there a level of uncertainty? Like, like what if he doesn't answer? And what if the wicked and evil men prevail? And in order to not even let his mind go there, verse 3. And in fact, if you look at the last prayer in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16, 17, now may the Lord... Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, may he comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and, and work. And then you look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. And Paul is, is saying, the prayer that I just prayed, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 17, he's going to be faithful to answer 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. Like Paul is writing so that their confidence would expand in the faithfulness of their God. In verse 4, we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. I mean, it just takes us back to the Great Commission, Matthew 28. What were they supposed to, what were the disciples supposed to do? They were supposed to teach others to obey all that Jesus had commanded. It wasn't merely just to teach them what Jesus taught, but to teach them to obey. And Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, I have confidence that you are obeying the word of God and that you will obey the word of God, but my confidence is not in you. It's in the work of the Lord in you. He is at work in you in order to grow you up in grace. That's why we sing songs like, He will hold me fast. Confidence in the rock-solid grip of God and the unwavering purposes of God for His glory among all peoples, that is your bedrock. And I believe that you believing that has brought you to a place where you are now freed up to even put your life on the line to say, we believe what God has said and through his word. So much so, we're willing to give up everything that we know. And in many ways, just thinking about how last week's sermon laid the foundation for this week. This is what happens when people behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and their hearts are riveted and gripped by that. 
And I love how he ends verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. This isn't concluding with a commandment. It's concluding with a prayer. This is the confidence in the optimism that we are to adopt. We are confident about the future of this family. We're confident about the future of this church. Why? Because of the character of our God. Like, that's why. Like, if we stake the future of their works, the future of this church's existence, if we stake that on anything other than the character of God, we run the risk of losing it all in vain. And over and over and over, all throughout Scripture, but then even also throughout history, God is just saying, put me to the test. I am faithful through and through. The Lord our God is ever faithful. And so we're confident about their future and we're confident about ours because we are confident about our Lord. And this is what we're begging. For the glory of your great name, as your word spreads swiftly and runs down people in Southeast Asia. We want to be faithful to remind them of your character, which is what Paul is doing here, and to be reminded of your faithfulness. Like that's the root that's going, that's going to sustain a ministry for the long haul. All glory to God as this happens in Southeast Asia. And all glory to God as this happens among the peoples of Tampa Bay. God has been rich in grace to us. And God has given his people a recurring ordinance to both remember the richness and the riches of his grace. And that's why we have and partake the Lord's Supper. Perhaps you've come in and you've thought to yourself, man, I've blown it multiple times this week. If there's anyone who on the basis of their performance doesn't deserve to take a meal that would so identify me with my Savior, it's me. And if you're in your sin, having never repented, this meal is not for you. But if you're in Christ, and this week has been an exercise of just how to fail again and again and again. If you're willing to turn from your sin, this meal is meant to bind you back up. 